welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, misinformation and jockeying for power. The latest on the situation in Haiti and the U.S. response following the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse. Our guest is a journalist and Haiti expert, Kevin Pina. Let us go to a clip now to hear uh, from another Haiti expert, Pierre Leboisier, giving us some context of the situation on the ground in Haiti uh, in the lead up to the assassination. Our brothers and sisters in Haiti have been denied since our foremothers and forefathers were kidnapped in Africa and forced into slavery. Our people have never stopped struggling as human beings demanding their right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Meaning what? Food, clean water, education, the right to live, the right to enjoy the fruit of their labor, not just to labor for somebody to make a plantation owner rich. And I know people here can relate to that because you fought your way out of slavery too, just like the people, the Africans in Haiti. We are one people. The boat just made many stops. We could be related. We could be kin. But because of the way they separated us, so now we end up, some of us are Jamaicans, some of us are Trinidadians, some of us are blacks in the U.S., you know, African-Americans or however, whatever. But we can relate. We need to relate to each other's struggles. So what's going on right now on the ground? As our people are demanding that their human rights be respected, that they have access to education, that they have access to clean water, that they be able to vote for the person that they choose or for the people they choose to represent them. There was a coup d'etat that the Bush administration did in 2004. And I'm going to 2004 because this is what's going on today. So the people never accepted the coup d'etat. Over 10,000 people were murdered during that period. Many others are serving to this day as food for sharks in the ocean. Some of us are ending up on the border right there of Tijuana. Many of them have, have tried, have been killed trying to cross the desert. Many of them have gone from Brazil all the way to the Tijuana border. I spoke to some of them who told me that they witnessed some brothers and sisters dying on the way as they were crossing those borders. Why? Why is this happening to us as black people? Why? All right. Because we dare to dream. We dare to say, I am somebody that I'm a human being, that my life matters. So the people of Haiti are determined and they haven't stopped struggling. Alrighty, and that is Pierre Labossier making the connection of the situation on the ground in Haiti and connecting it with people, black people who are spread throughout the diaspora and the Haitian resistance um, following that began in 2004 with the U.S.-backed coup and continued with the massive protests in across Haiti against Jovenel Moïse, the former president who now has been assassinated. 
also today in an effort to stem the tide of criminalization of crimes of poverty the u.s prostitutes collective has come together with the california coalition for women prisoners and other organizations to launch a know your rights campaign including an update on the demand for reparations for those who were illegally and forcibly sterilized in california prisons our guests are Alex uh, Makulit with U.S. Prostitutes Collective and Amina Elster with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. President Biden will deliver a speech on voting rights today in Philadelphia. He faces growing pressure from civil rights activists and other Democrats to combat efforts by Republican-led state legislatures to restrict access to the ballot. Biden has declared that protecting voting rights was the central cause of his presidency, but the White House has come in for criticism for not doing enough. Biden's speech is meant to kick off a public pressure campaign, but Senate Republicans have blocked federal voting rights legislation. Several states have enacted voting restrictions and others are debating them. Republicans have seized on former President Trump's false claim of massive voter fraud in the 2020 election as a pretense for curtailing ballot access. Texas legislative Democrats fled the state for Washington, D.C. Monday to block a quorum or a minimum number of lawmakers needed to be present to act on Republican legislation that would limit voting rights. The legislation in Texas would include limiting voting hours and other restrictions. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott said he would keep calling special sessions through next year if necessary and raise the possibility of Democrats facing arrest upon returning to Texas. A fire that erupted at a coronavirus hospital ward in southern Iraq has killed at least 64 people. That's according to Iraqi medical officials. Two health officials said more than 100 people were also injured in the fire that torched the coronavirus ward of Al-Hussein Teaching Hospital in the city of Nasiriya on Monday. Victims' families angrily blamed both local officials and the federal government in Baghdad for years of mismanagement and neglect. Overnight, firefighters and rescuers worked, worked through the ward in the darkness. Officials had said the fire was caused by an electrical short, but provided no more details. Another official said the blaze erupted when an oxygen cylinder exploded. Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadimi chaired an emergency meeting in the wake of the fire and ordered the suspension and arrest of the local health director, as well as the director of the hospital and the city's director of civil defense. A government investigation was also launched. Thousands of people in Miami marched in the city's Little Havana neighborhood in solidarity with thousands of Cubans who marched on Sunday against the Cuban government, food shortages, and the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Such unsanctioned protests are extremely rare in the authoritarian country. Cuban police have been out in force to control them. President Biden told reporters yesterday that he supports the protesters' right to demonstrate peacefully. The United States stands firmly with the people of Cuba as they assert their universal rights. And we call on the government, government of Cuba, to refrain from violence and their attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. 
The last such widespread demonstrations in Havana happened in 1994. President President Miguel Diaz-Canel accused Cuban-Americans of using social media to incite the protests and blamed the island's economic woes on U.S. sanctions. South Africa's rioting continued today, with the death toll rising to 32 as police and the military struggle to quell the looting and violence in two provinces. Feature Story News' Mark Routen reports that what started out as protests over the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma on corruption charges has descended into violence. What started on Friday as protest action against the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma took less than 24 hours to degenerate into pure criminality. On Monday night, images of ongoing looting were broadcast live alongside President Cyril Ramaphosa's address to the nation. He says that government will restore law and order in affected areas, but for hundreds of retailers, it is already too late. Mark Routen, South Africa. California's new coronavirus rules for public schools eliminate physical distancing and make sure students won't miss class time, even if they're exposed to someone with the virus. But the state says it will still require everyone to wear masks while indoors. The state promised to review and possibly change this rule by November 1st, but the move has angered some parents. Some parents groups say they're preparing to sue the state over the new rules. Dr. Monica Gandhi is an infectious disease doctor and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She says the state's new rules are reasonable. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are going to start off our show with our ongoing coverage of the crisis in Haiti. It has been almost a week since Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated in his home, yet many questions remain up in the air. You might recall that on July 7th, 2021, Haitian President, U.S.-backed Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was killed during an attack on his private residence. A heavily armed commando unit um, was said to assassinate him. But of course, this is all up in the air. I mean, we're being told that the assassination was carried out by 26 Colombian military vets and two Haitian Americans. That is what authorities have said. But what were Colombian ex-military members doing in Haiti? How did the assailants get through a fortified compound defended by Haitian security forces with no other deaths? Um, now, CNN, has they have come out with um, what they say they have put together about the, the gunfight and the chase that followed the assassination of Jovenel Moïse. Let's go to that clip now. Hours after Haiti's president was assassinated, gunfire still crackled through Port-au-Prince. But this time, it was the alleged assassins under attack. As bullets slammed into the concrete walls around the group, one fighter called his sister. He told me they were in a house, she says, under siege, under fire and fighting. She added he's not a killer. Just 36 hours after a group of more than two dozen Colombians and two Haitian Americans allegedly assassinated a president, most would either be detained or declared dead. This is how that happened, according to a source with knowledge of the operation to track them down. Nighttime video from around the time of the president's death quickly went viral, where you can hear a suspect claiming there was a DEA operation ongoing. 
Later, a convoy of five cars can be seen leaving the area with ease, but down the road, a trap was being set. As the convoy traveled down Kenscoff Road, a roadblock was ready. Heavily armed security forces would not let them pass without a fight. Arriving and seeing they couldn't go any further, the convoy stops, part of which you can see here. Our source says the suspects jumped out and saw this building across the road. They raced toward it, immediately taking the stairs to the second floor. It's in this building that these alleged mercenaries will begin defending themselves. But at the same moment they're coming in here, according to our source, Haitian security forces are making a crucial decision. They know that these alleged attackers have limited food, water, ammunition, and no power. So they essentially decide to wait them out. About 12 hours later, after baking in 90-plus degree Haitian heat, authorities throw tear gas in front of the building. It's enough to force negotiations, and the Colombians inside eventually send out four people, including this man, one of two Haitian-Americans whom authorities have detained. He's joined by the other Haitian-American and two Haitian hostages, a pair of police officers who were at the president's house. According to our source, at some point during the negotiations, a group of the Colombians still here come out of this building and start heading up this hill on the backside of the building. And eventually they make their way to a seemingly strange destination. Just about 100 meters up the hill from the building lies the Taiwan Embassy. Our source thinks the Colombians went there because it wasn't an easy place for police to enter, given its diplomatic immunity. In order to get all the way here to the embassy, though, they had to walk through a pretty residential neighborhood. And according to our source, someone tipped off authorities that this group of heavily armed men was here. When they arrived at the embassy, they found a largely empty building except for two security guards whom they tied up. Security forces quickly surrounded the embassy and then turned their attention back to the building below, where they believed a few suspects remained. It was time to go in. A small assault team went in on the ground floor and were met with fierce fire that you can hear from the handful of Colombians that were still inside. The hour-long firefight shattered windows, scarred concrete ceilings and walls, and in the end, the government says at least three Colombians died in the fighting. The next day, with Taiwan's permission, authorities went into the embassy. Our source says authorities checked CCTV cameras and found nearly a dozen Colombians in a room who ended up giving up without more fighting. Nearly a half dozen still haven't been found. Matt Rivers, CNN, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Well, let's welcome uh, Kevin Pina, who is a journalist, filmmaker, educator. He is also serves as a country expert on Haiti, and he lived in Haiti uh, for about a decade or so, but he serves as a country expert on Haiti for the Varieties of Democracy Project, sponsored by the University of Notre Dame Center for Research Computing and the University of Gothenburg Department of Political Science and the Helen Kellogg Institute for International uh, Studies. And he also is heard on our sister station in Berkeley, KPFA. Kevin Pina, welcome back. Thanks, Margaret. Good morning. Okay, so Kevin, it seems as though um, we know that the 
on Sunday, July 11, patient authorities said they had arrested a Miami-based Haitian-born uh, doctor that they describe as a central figure in the assassination. The um, the a prime minister whose legitimacy is being questioned all around, he has declared a state of siege and has asked the United States for military uh, help. Um, and meanwhile, officials from multiple U.S. agencies are joining the investigation into the assassination, and a senior Biden administration official confirmed that a technical team was being sent to the Caribbean uh, nation, and that includes representatives from the National Security Council, the State Department, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Homeland Security. So you can imagine all of the fears that that causes. But, um, Kevin, let's start to break this down because the media worldwide have accepted this story of these commandos, uh, many of whom were uh, Colombian, who went in to Moise's compound and assassinated him. A lot of questions about that story on the ground. Um, Kevin, what are you hearing? Well, first of all, you know, to hear CNN try to describe the Haitian police bend over backwards and try to describe the Haitian police as being professional in any way, it's just laughable and absurd. This is the same police department that's lost control of the country. And suddenly they're being heralded as law enforcement experts um, who are on top of this case and are, are arresting the correct suspects. The truth is that uh, this police force has fallen apart quite a while ago, and it is the recipient, has been the recipient of of, of U.S. aid and U.S. training and U.S. arming uh, and equipping, and yet it has been incapable of establishing security in its own country. And certainly there are many, many questions to be answered, not about how that convoy of five cars got back down the road after the president was killed, but how they got up the road in the first place. Somebody had to, because there's all, it's, it's Laboul, it's known as Rute Kinskoff, La Boule, I know it well. I used to live there. Uh, you, it's a single, narrow road in and out. There's always security at the bottom of the hill since uh, Jovenel Moise took up residence in Pellerin Sink, Pellerin 5 in that area. Always a USGPN palace security unit and always a CMO unit, a SWAT unit. Those guys had to have passed that unit. Somebody gave them the okay to get up that hill. Again, one road in, one road out. They had to go past security at the bottom of the hill. So that question remains unanswered at this point. But more importantly, yesterday I was speaking with a, a businessman in Haiti who's very close to a lot of the people who are connected to the center of this politically and, and uh, in this, in this so-called conspiracy. And really his, his statement was, you cannot throw a rock anywhere near this story without hitting a confidential informant of either the FBI, the DEA, or the CIA. That, in fact, they knew who Senan was, uh, the man who's being accused now of uh, the mastermind behind this, uh, Dr. Christian Emmanuel Senan. Uh, he was known, well-known by at least two U.S. government agencies for the past 12 months. He's been discussed among them. Uh, they've received phone calls from this particular businessman who actually called and asked about him, gave sort of a character reference. So they're very, very well aware of who, or have been aware of who Dr. Christian Emmanuel Sanon is for quite some time. We understand that uh, there are not just former 
FBI CIs that are close to this, who are Haitian-American in Miami, but current confidential informers who are close to this. They're not telling the whole truth of the story. There's still more to unfold. Um, The real question is now, of course, the power vacuum that's been left in Haiti. And we've seen a move, uh, a big fight between the ultra-right. And by the way, these are all pushes. These are all people who supported the 2004. Before we go into the the power vacuum, though, I just wanted to weigh in a little bit on, on this story because you're absolutely right. I mean, we are told that uh, Moise's compound protected by at least 100 uh, security people. You have um, some head of security of Moise's detail traveling to Colombia um, a couple of times, I, I think, and got who knows who he was uh, meeting with there. You have family members of the Colombians who were found, Colombians, some of whom, by the way, were trained in the School of the Americas, and I'd just like to underscore that uh, a little bit, that their job was to, quote-unquote, protect the president or protect a very important person. So to me, that leaves a lot of questions uh, uh, unanswered. I heard one story that people said that uh, the this alleged security detail had heard about a disturbance at Moise's uh, compound and that they went there. But that story doesn't seem to hold water either. But the fact that the only two people who were killed in this whole thing was Moise and um, Michelle Martelly, his wife, speaks volumes to me uh, with what happened. And also, yeah. Martine is not dead. Uh, Martine Moise is alive in Miami. Yeah, she was injured. She was shot and injured. But I'm saying they were the only two who were shot. Moise killed, his wife injured, nobody else except the the two Colombians that were then killed in the in the shootout so that happened afterwards. I mean, how is all of that possible? It doesn't make sense, it seems. Well, I mean, look at look at the the ferocity of the attack. This is this is this more resembles a, was made to resemble the the look of a gangland hit than the assassination of a head of state. Uh, rarely do you have a head of state who's able to be shot twelve times uh, and and sustain the amount of damage that uh, former president uh, the deceased president's body sustained. Uh, as I said, this was made to look, the intentionally made to look like a gangland hit. Now, you don't do, I mean, anybody who, if you look historically, normally you don't have 26 uh, people, uh, you know, try to assassinate a president. It's usually smaller teams and crews, you know, of professional hitmen. Uh, there are a lot of things that just simply don't add up in all of this. But I think especially, as you said, Dimitri Herard, who's the head of the USGPN, the palace security is under heavy scrutiny. Um, it would have been impossible for this to have, had, have, have happened without, first of all, tremendous funding, but also, secondly, uh, very deep sources and help on the ground. Um, whoever is responsible uh, of this, they're, they're not Colombian for sure. And we're just not simply, we're simply not buying that Dr. Christian... Uh, Emmanuel Sanon is the mastermind behind this. It just does not add up. 
He doesn't really have the financial resources. If you look at look at his background, this business person that I spoke to yesterday also expressed skepticism, saying that he really believes that Senon is the fall guy and that the people who entrap Senon and set him up and the Colombians as well uh, are the ones who are behind it. We don't know who that hand is, but we may never, because the United States' role in Haiti is not going to, has never been to uncover the truth. It's always been about U.S. interests. And if U.S. interests dictate uh, burying and covering this up, then that's exactly what will be done. But, you know, I, I like how you open this segment, which is all of this can be traced back to the coup of 2004 and what has been irreparable harm and damage that's been done to this country by the international community. If we want to look at the real cause of this, that's how we ended up here. Absolutely. And before, I, I do want to get to the power struggle that's going on now. But first, taking a look at some of the confusion uh, that is being sown. There's so much misinformation uh, floating around. And when I was in, the, the last few times I was in Haiti, uh, Kevin, I was covering the massacres that happened, did this video of massacres in, in La Saline, where um, communities that were strongholds of resistance against the Moïse administration, and also, by the way, strongholds of supporters of Lavalas, which is the movement and party headed by Jean Breton, Aristide, um, and there were massacres were brutal. It, you know, brought back memories of the Tonton Makut during the Duvalier era. And person after person after person named this guy named Barbecue, Jimmy uh, Chirizer, who as as really the person, a former police officer um, um, with backing from the Moise administration. Uh, doing these massacres. Now, he has formed a coalition of these so-named gangs all over the places, like this gang warfare that's going on, and it really covers over, to me, just referring to it as gang warfare, covers up a deeper uh, truth. But, Kevin, I was really alarmed to see that barbecue is now being rehabilitated as some kind of revolutionary leader. And you have a journalist like Kim Ives, who is frequently on Democracy Now!, their go-to person on Haiti, running around with this story, publishing an article about it that I think was in Jacobin uh, just a few days ago. Uh, Kevin Pina, I don't know if you are as alarmed as I am about building this man up as some kind of revolutionary leader. He's a mass murderer. Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, this businessman that I spoke to yesterday—you'll you'll like you'll you'll find this interesting. Um, I had asked him about what he thought about uh, barbecue and G9, and he had said that uh, when he had first started hearing about him, he was living in the United States uh, in Florida, and uh, that he had actually spoken to a member of the NSC, and this is a member of the NSC who also was very well aware of who Christian Emmanuel Sanon was. And he asked him, well, what do you, what, what's up with this barbecue guy, this, 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 this uh, former cop, Jimmy Cherizer? And the guy texted him back a single-word answer, Martelly. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, <laughs> that really tells you a whole heck of a lot here because I've noticed that other news out outlets, international news outlets, are now picking up this story about, uh, about barbecue. 
And anyway, so this is to be continued. But that, you know, I always warn our listeners that we really have to be careful um, whose voices we listen to in terms of what's happening on the ground in Haiti. Because there's so many Cointelpro operations. Uh, There is so much at stake, it seems, since the revolution of 1804, Kevin. Uh, The United States, for sure, has continued to intervene and destabilize and occupy and carry out coups, etc. But the Haitian people have been um, resilient in all of this. So we'll see where that goes. But certainly, um, I, for one, I'm going to say what Haitians have reported to me about this man, uh, Barbecue, and it is far from the truth, this rehabilitation that seems to be happening of him. Now, Kevin, um, I know you want to talk about the power struggle that's happening now following the assassination, the the struggle for who will lead Haiti, Kevin Pina? Well, well, well first of all, we realize that this party, the ruling party in Haiti, the PHTK, is only there by virtue of a U.S. intervention by then Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, where they actually changed the way in which ballots were calculated that allowed Martelly to go on to the second round and win the presidency. Uh, this is the 10th year of the PHTK ruling party being in power. Jovenel Moise, of course, is the successor of Michel Martelly. Um, they're all pushes, as I was saying. All of these people were involved, were rewarded for their role in the 2004 coup. That includes the current Prime Minister, Claude Joseph, who actually was then anointed by Helen Lalim and the international community, the so-called Friends of Haiti uh, group of concerned nations, the so-called core group, who then anointed him as the interim president who would then see Haiti into the next election cycle. And that's really what this is, has been about. I mean, that's really what, what this has exposed, is that really the Martelly wing, the Michel Martelly wing of the power, which Jovenel Moise represented. And, but his prime minister did not. His prime minister, Claude Joseph, represented what was called the GNB, the Grenamboudan, or the Brown Shirt Student Movement, uh, who were really the shock troops that created the most violent demonstrations in order to show that Aristide had lost control of the country, justifying the 2004 coup. Claude Joseph wow. was rewarded for that. He has long ties to the U.S. intelligence community, as does the person who was supposed to replace him. And remember the timing of this, that in fact, Jovenel Moise was assassinated the very day that his new appointed hand-picked prime minister, Ariel Henry was supposed to be invested into the premature, the prime minister's office. And Claude Joseph, of course, benefited directly from this because he then stepped up and claimed himself president, then anointed by the international community, setting off an internecine battle now for power, scrambling for power. And it's really, you know, the, the, the Martelly wing could not win elections. It was clear that their brand had been so tainted that they could not win the next, or it was going to be questionable whether they could win the next elections. If that's the case, and their stranglehold over the elections, and their uh, w- most Haitians called them selections, was weakened, it really opened the door for reemergence of Fami Lavalas again, because they are poised to take <laughs> to win elections should there ever be real free and fair elections in that country. So now we have a scramble of power. Everybody courting the United States, saying we're the ones who can manage this. We're the ones who can make sure that this comes off the way that we want to. Because really, at the end of the day, it's about somebody being in power that the U.S. can trust 
to maintain the status quo of the oligarchy, of the established economic monopoly that those few families still have over the economy of Haiti. And that's really, at the end of the day, what it's about. Who is the U.S. going to anoint to, to be sure that they take those, those next elections and continue the status quo of the elite, the oligarchy, and U.S. proxies, if you will, inside of Haiti? U.S. proxies, indeed, and and you know, Kevin, I you know, I always think that there isn't a whole lot that happens on the ground in Haiti, uh, politically or economically, that the United States doesn't have a hand in, if not directly, indirectly, or somehow allowing it to happen. And this issue of elections. You know, that's been really contentious. One was that they were Moise was trying to um, redo the, the Constitution, the Haitian Constitution, and basically bring back the Duvalieris uh, Constitution that the movement had managed to get rid of. But you're right about the thing about elections, because from the OAS, the Organization of American States, the U.S., the Biden administration, everybody had been pushing, pushing, pushing elections to happen and the movement on the ground were saying this is not feasible it is not possible first of all um Maurice had packed the electoral council which was a problem in and of itself but given um the level of of violence and uprising etc happening there it just was impossible and the people were asking for a period a, a kind of a transitional uh period where members various representatives from the opposition would come together to work towards a government uh, a kind of a good governance structure and it was only at that point that they could think about elections so it seems to me now that with the assassination that has happened and the crisis on the ground where there isn't a constitutional guide for how to resolve this with this Claude Joseph uh, Duvalieris um, himself um, being in charge that there are a lot of forces that would do anything, it seems to me, other than Femi Lavalas being back in power. There's so much. I mean, the, Lavalas isn't mentioned hardly ever in the mainstream press, but everybody that knows Haiti knows very well the popularity and strength of Femi Lavalas on the ground and how the United States, the OAS, the core group, sees the threat of Femi Lavalas getting back into power. Um, Kevin Pina. Well, um, ab absolutely, and that's, that's the point. And, uh, if we, you know, July the 15th is Aristide's birthday. We'll see if there are going to be uh, celebrations. You know that the uh, police now have banned all protests and all demonstrations. Uh, there was one that was called for today. We're going to see if uh, I'm going to check in with that very shortly in the streets and see what's going on there. Uh, but uh, the, the country is basically right now, i got to tell you, there are already U.S. troops in Haiti. And there are certainly U.S. troops in the Dominican Republic poised to come over the border should they uh, be deemed necessary by the Pentagon. We know that the Haitian government, that, Jean -Claude, uh, that uh, Claude Joseph's government, has already asked for U.S. military assistance on the ground. Um, all of this, of course, again, is ostensibly to restore democracy. But isn't that exactly what the international community said it was doing when it overthrew Aristide in 2004? And we really have to ask ourselves, 
has U.S. intervention, has international intervention done more harm than good in Haiti? And I think that anybody uh, who, who's honest about that would say that it's done more harm, that in fact the very institutions that they said they were going to rebuild in the name of democracy are today so weakened and at the core of the, the, the inability uh, of, of, of the popular movement to address and redress the endemic corruption that now marks the current ruling party. Again, a ruling party that was put directly into office by the United States government, has had, could only stay in office and stay in power by virtue of support of the international community led by the United States. They have a direct responsibility for what's going on on the ground, and the, really the only solution is get the hell out of Haiti. Let things take their proper course. There is a popular movement, there is a democratic movement that's vibrant in that country, that includes and is often led by Fami Lavalas in the streets. There are, of course, other sectors of the opposition that should be at the table. But really, there needs to be a pause button put on all this. And the PHTK corrupt ruling party put out of power and a government of national consensus that can lead and rebuild Haitian institutions. Take a year or two, which is the proposal that Fami Lavalas has put forward called Sali Public. Take a year or two, put a pause on it, rebuild those institutions, have Haitians come together in dialogue, different forces at the table in order to decide what is best for their future, what is best for the majority of their citizens without U.S. interference, without interference of the international community. Right. Well, on that note, Kevin, we will be calling on you again, and we will be continuing to follow this story. For people who want to follow you, you are so involved with the situation on the ground. And uh, on Twitter, you have so much information. Um, give us the Twitter handle uh, where people could find your work, Kevin Pina. Uh, it's the at sign, Haiti Info Project, H-A-I-T-I-I-N-F-O-P-R-O-J. Right. Thank you so much for your work, uh, Kevin Pina, and you stay well and safe. Thank you for joining us. All righty. And uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. For those of you who also want to find out more about what's happening on the ground, as I said, you've got journalists, um, you know, heard on some of these airways giving misinformation about people like barbecue um, being some kind of revolutionary, please go to uh, HaitiSolidarity.net where you will really get the truth of what is going on and also how you can support grassroots strugglers on the ground in Haiti. Also, of course, the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. You can find them <clears throat> online. We're going to take a short station break and coming up, um, we are going to be joined by uh, two women who are very involved now in a Know Your Rights campaign, one on the rights of sex workers, the other uh, on legislation in California about reparations for people who were forcibly sterilized in California prisons. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mama, dear mama, look in yonder tree. See that pretty little sparrow We're looking back at me She can soar above the clouds Way up in the sky 
Uh, Giddens. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio, and we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. And internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Puerto Rico. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. I'd now like to uh, go on to uh, this next story. The U.S. Prostitutes Collective, a multiracial network of women who work or have worked in different areas of the sex industry, are launching a new Know Your Rights uh, campaign uh, booklet. They have come together with uh, other organizations uh, to launch this, and we're going to hear about that today and and why they are doing it. And uh, also, we know that women are some of the fastest growing population of people going to prison. Percentage-wise, the majority of prisoners in the United States are still men. Of course, the U.S. having the largest uh, population of incarcerated people globally anywhere else in the world. But increasingly, we're finding that single mothers uh, are the fastest growing population of people going to prison, a number of them going in for uh, so-called crimes of poverty, some, of course, who were caught up in the uh, the drug and opioid epidemic. Um, so in the middle of this, uh, sex workers are organizing, uh, you know, uh, for their rights against uh, criminalization. And also, there is pushback in, in prisons across the United States. Um, people have been forcibly sterilized against their will. You got it. That's right. It's like eugenics, right? They were forcibly uh, sterilized, a permanent uh, procedure to prevent pregnancy. And uh, people have been organizing against this. And there's now a bill in California awaiting signature from the governor that would um, pay reparations for those who have been victims of this practice. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to uh, welcome our guests here. I'd like to welcome first Alex uh, Makulit, who is an organizer with U.S. Prostitutes Collective. They is based in the Bay Area. Alex is active in the movement to decriminalize sex work and to demand protections for sex workers against poverty. Alex, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me, Margaret. Okay, I'd also like to welcome Amina Elster, campaign and policy coordinator with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, where she leads its campaign to end coercive sterilization practices in women's prisons. Amina's motivation to achieve racial and gender justice is rooted in her own lived experience as a black formerly incarcerated woman and navigating the intersections of those identities. Amina, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for having me, Margaret. Okay, so Alex, let's start with you and tell us about uh, the launch of this uh, public information campaign that's coming up and why you're doing it. Yes, thank you. Um, so the U.S. Prostitutes Collective, alongside um, CCWP, HIPS, DC, um, Legal Action for Women, and several other groups, um, have been working on a booklet, a Know Your Rights booklet, um, that highlights all of the work that we've been doing um, in California and spread across um, with the intersectional work that we do with people across the globe. Um, and so this booklet is going to highlight um, some of the protections that we've won for sex workers when reporting violence in California, um, as well as highlighting a campaign that uh, we collaborated on with formerly incarcerated people um, to win compensation for sex workers and formerly incarcerated people who have been victims and survivors of rape and other violence. Um, so we have a lot of really amazing uh, victories that we need to share with people, and it's very likely, um, I'm not likely it's happening, that the state and the government are not uh, promoting the victories that we have um, to people. So those that are impacted um, by the atrocities that they've experienced uh, are not getting any outreach to by uh, the folks that passed the law. So uh, our hope is that this booklet um, will help strengthen the knowledge that people have and we can see if the laws that we've passed even work for the people. Um, so, yeah, we're just really excited to be pushing this out. We're doing a, a launch tomorrow uh, July 14th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, that's going to be on Twitter and other social media. And so if you go to the uspros.net website, you'll find all of that wonderful information there so you can join us for our hard launch tomorrow. Um, and it's just been a really great way for us to collaborate and highlight the work that Amina and CCWP is doing um, and highlight our collaborations and the intersections of our work as uh, we are some of the most marginalized people that are criminalized for surviving and together uh, we are formerly incarcerated people um, and those facing incarceration. So yeah, really excited to do this work and um, very hopeful that we will win uh, these bills for reparations and, and other uh, reparations that are owed to people who have been criminalized. Right, and I, I've actually seen um, at least uh, what may be a, a close to a final draft of the brochure, and I must say it's beautifully done, uh, the, just the way, the, the layout of it, um, and, and thanking your, your team um, working on this. 
and also it's not only been folks in California, but the representatives from HIPS in uh, DC, a black trans woman, Tamika, who's been part of the planning group as well. Now, Amina, let's go to you though, on this whole issue of sterilization of women in prisons. First of all, a lot of people think that well, sterilization is something that happened in the bad old days and that uh, they actually have stopped. We know uh, historically uh, in terms of black people, the eugenics movement, there was a strong eugenics movement uh, and the sterilization of, of black women and, and black men also uh, coming out of that. But tell us what has been going on in the prisons and the legislation that you all have worked at and where things are with it now and also why you are part of this effort of this public information campaign with us pros. Amina Elster. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we know that um, the, the the systems really, they never really go away. They just find a way to recycle themselves or remake themselves. So although the state repealed its eugenics laws in 1979, you know, coerced and forced sterilizations continue to save prisons until the 2010s. So between 2006 and 2010, a state audit revealed that at least 144 people, um, the majority of black and Latinx um, individuals, were illegally sterilized during labor, labor and delivery while in custody in women's prisons. So for the last four years, um, CCWP and um, some other co-sponsor um, organizations have um, tried to pass a legislation for the sterilization compensation bill, which would... Um, compensate not only historical um, eugenic survivors in California, but the more contemporary, which are those that um, were coerced or forced while in prison, but compensate them for the um, the abuse that the state inflicted on individuals, but to also help educate the public by placing markers um, at historical sites because a lot of folks, you know, what we learned is that a lot of folks didn't even realize that this had even happened or that it continues to go on. So AB 1007 um, is, is the current legislative bill to, um, to you know, pass the reparations program. But in, in, we also ran a companion budget, um, budget, a budget ask, which is currently um, waiting for the governor's approval. The bill is also still, you know, working its way through the legislature. We want to make sure that this is the year to get this bill passed and, you know, get the state to acknowledge its harms. Um, so fingers crossed today, hopefully today is the day the governor signs the budget and, you know, we could really check this victory off. And I'm a part of this, um, this group and the Know Your Rights because, like Alex said, the state is not going to, you know, we, we can't we can't leave it to the state to make sure like the programs are implemented or that folks have the necessary outreach that they need in order to tap into these resources. So it's imperative that we, you know, uh, educate our peers and other and other individuals who have been criminalized for survival um, and find themselves in prison because there's a lot of folks in prison that were sterilized and aren't even aware of it. Um, so the Know Your Rights booklet helps to, you know, educate folks so that they'll know what, what they are entitled to um, and how to, you know, tap into those resources, but also, you know, spreading awareness to other people in the public that this stuff is going on 
and um, it's, it's it's not right, you know. And and here are here are ways, and here are organizations that can help you kind of navigate and um, you know get the things or, or the attention or the services and the supports that you know folks need. Right. Thank you for that. Um, and you know, back to you, Alex. Thank you for that, um, Amina. Back to you, Alex. I mean the. The thing, looking at the work that you've done, I mean, you know, the work of Rachel West from U.S. Prostitutes Collective for decades in the Bay Area, you know, really winning uh, quite a bit, being part of the San Francisco Task Force on Prostitution, and then going to the state legislature and lobbying on the issues and winning uh, the issue of uh, compensation. And those of us who've been doing the work on the serial murders of black women in South LA, we certainly want to build on the work that U.S. Prostitutes Collective and all of the other organizations that came on board to win this victory of the right to compensation to make sure that the families of the serial murder victims uh, are properly compensated in terms of victims' compensation because we believe that they were not. Um, but Alex, uh, again, um, you know, there there's so many issues at play here and looking at what you all have won and Amina, what you have won too in terms of even getting this legislation as far as it did, there are people in other parts of the country who uh, may see this work, see this a booklet or slash brochure, I think it started out as a brochure, it's now a, a booklet and perhaps could start organizing and moving on some of these issues uh, in their state. So just a final thought from you, Alex, and again, give people the information if they want to be involved in the launch tomorrow, what they should do. Yeah, thank you, Margaret, um, and thank you, Amina. Uh, so uh, you can go onto our website at uspros.net, and we have all of the information um, there as well um, with sample tweets and hashtags. Um, but tomorrow, 7.14, uh, which is Wednesday, we're going to be on Twitter at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Mountain Time, and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll be tweeting for about an hour um, sharing uh, the booklet and uh, giving everyone links so that they can share it wide with their people. And you do bring up a really great point. Um, we are really hoping that this booklet will help other people in states across the country um, and in places across the world um, help them pass similar laws so that they can protect right. sex workers and, and others in their um, homes. Yeah, yeah. Thank Tomorrow, you. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. Thank you. All righty. And, and Amina, for people who want to find out more about your work, about the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and about this uh, sterilization uh, bill, the compensation for sterilization, what should they do? Yeah. Um, for more information about the sterilization compensation program, you please email info at womenprisoners.org or you could look up um, CCWP on the internet and there's also information on the internet um, regarding the compensation program. 
Right. Well, I'm afraid we are out of time. We're going to have to leave it there for our listeners in D.C. By the way, HIPS D.C., they were part of the planning group for this. So there's a way in which it was already uh, had a kind of a national scope. Well, um, Alex and Amina, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer. I'd like to thank Gary Baca. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Uh, If you would like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all, please stay safe.